Hey, and welcome back to the history of China. Ah, what a time to be alive. Life update? Life update. My job is in full swing, life is fantastic, and it's a new chapter. But it might be a new chapter for me, though it's the last chapter for the wonderful Huo Guang. Sorry to spoil it, but I mean, he couldn't live forever. Anyway, be sure to check out the website at dormroomhistory.com slash the history of China. Now, before you guys come to North Carolina and depose me as the podcaster for this show, let me clarify. There was a server and credit card issue with the site, but the new post should be up soon. Thank you to all of those who have donated. Shout out to Amanda and Adam, by the way. And thank you to those that followed this week and last. And of course, thank you for just listening. I love making this show and it makes me really excited and happy that you guys love it just as much as I do. Ah, so we have gotten out of the weird and quick fire emperor changes and we finally have a stable emperor. And Huo Guang has come out not only unscathed, but in a position of immense trust and authority. So, without further ado, The History of China, Episode 39, Moving On. There is something I want to get off my chest. I am aware that at the present, this show is at times a who's who of the Imperial Palace. And look, I understand that frustration. And if it's not a frustration, well then ignore what I'm about to say. But if it is a subtle issue to you, here is my excuse. Firstly, this history is old. Very old. We are so lucky to have the information we have... But that information often is of a top-down nature. You know, not everything was written down, and what was, was by default a top-down approach. So thus, we will be subjected to a more great people of history theory in the Han Dynasty and for the foreseeable future. Secondly, I have been and will continue to add in supplemental ideas as, you know, they come along. The more modern we get, the more modern history comes down to us, more or less. And of course, there will be times in the future, after this point in the Han Dynasty, where things will become vague, but alas. So, therefore, expect more of those, those supplementals, as we progress through time together. But in the meantime, if you guys have things you want to know more about, in a given time period, a given topic, or a thing, a person, or an idea, and you have a question about it, please email me. If you guys ask, I will deliver. So, a little listener's question supplemental, because there is a lot in ancient China, and not all of it can fill a full episode, but when you guys ask questions, and based on the amount of emails I get, we should be more than able to fill an episode or two answering questions about all the different little nuances of the time period we are in right now. But, okay, back to the palace. Emperor Xuan ascended in 74 BC, and the spelling, by the way, is X-U-A-N, so now you know. And along with him, though, 
with his ascension. So did Huo Guang. Again, Emperor Xuan knew a good thing when he saw it, which based on the last two emperors is a very encouraging thing to hear. Huo Guang had earned his stripes. And finally, the state was better off because of it. That is what he always wanted. The state being better. That and only that. But good work gets good rewards, and his sons and other family were soon made high-ranking government officials. They followed his coattails. I mean, if you're going to be that good, yeah, a little reward's going to come downstream to you. For all intents and purposes, though, Huo Guang was Emperor Xuan's master of horse. It's a Roman term, I know. But that's really what he was. The master of horse in Rome was the second in command to the Roman dictator, and essentially held the same amount of power, but yeah, had to answer to the dictator. So, Huo Guang shared in mostly all of the imperial powers that the emperor did, but of course, yeah, he wasn't the emperor. There was a junior and senior position there. Though while it may seem this way, it is clear Huo Guang is not perfect. He can make the wrong call, and he is not in control of people who are not named Huo Guang. And here is what I mean by that. Emperor Shen was quite young when he ascended. I mean, he wasn't 12, but he did not have a proper empress yet. He didn't have a wife. He did have a son, though, via a consort. You know the rules, though. Son of an empress is the crown prince. So, that son is not the crown prince yet. Does he just marry the consort? Or should it be someone else? The government officials at the time seemed to have their answer. It should be someone else. But that someone else was Huo Guang's daughter. Ah, palace drama. Our new theme for the last two episodes. So here we go. Emperor Xuan did not say no to the idea per se. He didn't say, no, I don't want Huo Guang's daughter. But he did sort of give the signal to his close advisors that he wanted to marry the consort after all. And these advisors, the ones he, you know, winked and nudged, they were loyal to the emperor. They were ones that came with Emperor Shren. So when they got the little sign, a couple little go grab my commoner's sword and a couple other signs, they knew the writing on the wall. And they changed their stance to support the consort to be the new empress. And by 74 BC, that consort was made empress. On the offset, though, this wasn't a really big deal. Because I never said Huo Guang pushed for this. I just said it was Huo Guang's daughter. Officials did push for it. I mean, it was a legitimately valid idea to have her be the empress. And Huo Guang never died on that hill. And he never tried to die on that hill. But don't worry, the story is not over. In 74 BC, Emperor Shren tried to make his new father-in-law a Marquis. Fair, completely fair. 
reward your new wife and the empress and make her father high nobility, everybody's going to win in that deal. But oh wait, Emperor Xuan's new father-in-law was a castrated eunuch. And if you remember from the Sima Qian segment a few episodes back, we know that castration was a really, really bad punishment. He thus had chosen no, you know, to those, instead of no life. But the par for the course, as we know, was that being castrated was so disgraceful that you were more or less expected to end your own life. So making that guy with that punishment a Marquis? Mm-mm, no, Huo Guang was not having any of that. That is a no from me, dog. And while you could potentially see this as a swipe for his daughter being turned down, we know well by now how much Huo Guang lived for the state. He didn't push for his daughter that hard. She was an option, but it really wasn't his big idea. He didn't put his flag on that hill and say, this is where I'm going to make my stand. No, because really, raising someone with that punishment and that background to Marquis was really just a bad look for the emperor, for the Han dynasty, and for all the other nobles. And thus, no one felt, based on Huo Guang's rejection of this, that he was overstepping. Because even Emperor Xuan concurred, and that idea to make his new father-in-law, who was castrated, a Marquis, was dropped. The castrated father-in-law to the emperor was made a lord instead, but that was a concession at best. And stepping back, though, and really looking at this from a bird's-eye view, Huo Guang was completely fine with everything, with this situation he was now in, that the empire was in, yeah, his daughter was not made empress, but he was wielding some immense power at the behest of the emperor. It wasn't like he was trying to be sneaky. The emperor was giving him this authority. On top of that, his family members were being raised up to high positions of government authority as well. For Huo Guang, at least, the state of the Han dynasty was in good hands. The emperor carousel was essentially over. Policy was coming in and policy was being completed. Things were good. And he was not going to do anything to risk that. At his core, the state was great. As a little bonus cherry on top, his family was getting better off because of it. But his wife, on the other hand, was not fine with this situation. And here is where Huo Guang is the Michael Corleone. And his wife is the Fredo Corleone. Because she is about to put everything Huo Guang fought for and earned at risk. She, Huo Guang's wife, was not thrilled that her daughter was spurned for the consort and daughter of a now castrated man. Everything was great in life for her and her husband and the Han, besides that one little detail. 
Now, if you had asked her 15 years prior if she would be, you know, content where her and her husband and their clan were now, she would have jumped at that. I mean, it was almost unimaginable how good things were for them. But people tend to adjust to their current situations without really looking at the hindsight. And she simply could not let this go. And she would go to absurd lengths with this. She wasn't going to stop. Oh yeah, she'll do more than hold a grudge and complain. And in 71 BC, Huo Guang's wife was going to do something about her daughter being spurned. That year, 71 BC, the Empress was pregnant and thus was receiving constant and thorough medical attention. Her child was, after all, the child of the emperor. I mean, for spiritual and political and all the reasons above, that baby needed to be born, and that empress needed to stay alive. Being the son of the empress is the whole reason why that situation of succession exists. If she's gone, it just adds a whole nother monkey wrench into the situation. So yeah, par for the course, they're looking after her, they're caring for her, giving her the best. But Huo Guang's wife, in this, saw a moment to act. Albeit an act that makes Lady Macbeth seem like Mother Teresa, because the plan was simple. Bribe the nurse, and right after the Empress gives birth, and when she's taking medicine, and let's be real, more like herbal concoctions, poison one of them. She'll die, and then the Emperor will have no choice but to marry Huo Guang's daughter after all. In that same year, 71 BC, that plan worked like an Ocean's Eleven heist montage. The Empress was poisoned, and she soon died. Bribing the nurse worked, I guess. Obviously, with the Empress dead, the medical staff that were attending to her were all questioned on whether or not they gave the Empress proper care after childbirth. Though when you think about it, this plan was devious, yet it was really well thought out. Because you can't get caught doing it. If you get caught doing it, there was no point to do it. Dying during childbirth was common then, and it was up until very recently. So with that, plus the fact that there is no such thing as forensic investigations at that point, unless someone came clean, nobody was going to get in trouble. The excuse was easy. She died in childbirth. Simple. Yeah, did you give her the best care? They did, and the emperor can just say, well, shoot. And here is the tricky part of this whole thing. Huo Guang himself was not part of this plan, at least according to the histories. We know he had no intention to make his daughter empress, or at least not a really strong one. And so for all intents and purposes, he had no idea. But once he found out what happened, he was faced with an unimaginably hard choice. 
he could do the right thing by the state and thus risk his and his family's lives. Or he could keep quiet. He could choose either option for a variety of reasons. It truly is a hard position. And his choice to not turn his wife in sparked some internal debate within my own head. What would I have done? What would you guys have done? Risked it all to be honest to the state? Or say nothing and protect your family and potentially even save the state a world of hurt? I mean, imagine. The second-in-command's wife killed the empress? If that came out, that would throw things into flux. Ah, I mean, it's, it's really hard. What to do? And just like last episode, I'll ask you, email me and comment your answers to that question. If you're Huo Guang, what would you do? And wait, what's that? Is, is that a new attack I hear? When it rains, it pours because, oh my God, look at that. In that same year, 71 BC, the Xiongnu's constant incursions into Xi Yu territory, the same region we've sort of been touching on the last couple episodes, in the western frontier of China, became enough. Again, I am a broken record. I know. I do. Trust me, I use the same jokes. I have the same one-liners. But listen. The Xiongnu attacking a tribal vassal of the Han Dynasty's westernmost frontier shows just how far they've fallen. I really regret saying that they were defeated because they were, but in a podcast, maybe that idea didn't really get into everyone's head. I've gotten some emails about that. So let's sort this out. The Xiongnu are not a true existential threat to the Han Dynasty anymore. They're not. But they, yes, still at times, become annoying. Long story short, because these small incursions were becoming repetitive and somewhat annoying and somewhat costly to the pocketbook of the Han Dynasty and was messing with their allies, Emperor Xuan responded by sending overwhelming force. That's par for the course now. He sends five generals in total. I mean, that is absurd just to deal with this Xiongnu incursion into the western frontier. Though the fighting was inconclusive to start, as Napoleon once said, though, quantity has a quality all to its own. And the Han's overwhelming force played the Xiongnu's hand. They had to meet the Han Dynasty's army in their entirety, thus allowing the Wusan kingdom of the Xiyu to take free shots at the Xiongnu on their western flank. The Xiongnu couldn't handle everyone at once. They had to meet the Han, and in doing so, let the Xiyu's Wusan kingdom just do as they pleased. Eventually, the Xiongnu were defeated, of course. And like every defeat of the Xiongnu as of late, a little bit of their power is now permanently lost. They're like an iceberg sinking into the warm waters. They're just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And they were so weakened in this western region, the small Shiyu kingdoms became 
a big enough handful to stop the Xiongnu from ever having incursions into Han territory there. They came in, bullied the Xiyu, got beat by the Han and the Xiyu people, and now the Xiyu were able to just deal with them themselves. So yeah. So, so, so. Whatever happened to Guang's daughter? Did Guang's daughter get made empress? The empress died, the Xiongnu came, things were dealt with. Well, in 70 BC, the final part of the plan finally was accomplished. And Guang's daughter was made empress. The quick rundown is that she comes on as empress. The emperor takes her. And she is... Let's just say, not the daughter of a castrated outcast. Huo Guang's daughter has grown up in high society. And the chroniclers made a very specific point to let it be known that her expenses were considerably more than the last empress. So yeah, in 70 BC, Emperor Xuan had made Huo Guang's daughter an empress. But what about the state? Enough of the palace, I know. It was enough of the war, the military history, and then we just transitioned directly right into palace gossip. What about Emperor Xuan's policy and direction as an emperor? I mean, he's gonna be here for a while. We might as well get to know him. As we can see with his retention of Huo Guang as an official wielding nearly total power, Emperor Xuan was comfortable sharing power. He was comfortable appointing the best people to do the best job. He was open-minded, and he was actually pretty tolerant and sought officials who themselves were in the same boat. He sought criminal justice reform, which before you come screaming in like a dive bomber saying, they did criminal justice reform back then, blah, 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 but modern, all these issues. No, no, no. Because back then, this was more like, do we really have to execute people for every crime? I mean, is that, is that really what we have to do? Yeah, so, but criminal justice nonetheless. He wanted to add more judges, make the appeal system more clean. And we'll get into that more later, because in this early stage of his reign, not much really is done but you begin to see the blueprint for who he is as an emperor. And who he is as an emperor is about to change. Because in 68 BC, Emperor Xuan would lose his closest advisor. Huo Guang, who had been through so much, was now no longer part of the mortal plane. And he was not to be replaced. With his death, Emperor Xuan would assume virtually all power now. No one could replace Huo Guang. He was simply not a regular advisor, and you should know that because we've never talked about an advisor this much. Huo Guang was a once-in-history level of advisor and regent. He was fantastic at his job, yet never sought the true power. Never made himself emperor. Never did things that would give himself more power. I mean, heck, when Emperor Xuan ascended to the throne, it was Guang who said, here, take all my powers back. Thank you. Best of luck. And the emperor, of course, said no. He was so important, in fact, 
that he had an entire mausoleum built for him by the emperor. And this is where it gets shocking, and it's not going to be shocking to us now, but the empress and emperor attended Huo Guang's funeral personally. And this is a big deal. Yet, the emperor usually doesn't go to his empress's dad's funeral, doesn't go to his general's funerals. This is something the emperor virtually would never do in all of the Han Dynasty. He went to his funeral, was there at the procession, and that, if anything, shows how important he was. I've tried to show you guys and explain to you guys, and even to myself, you know, how incredible it is to have someone who is willing to be that focused on the state. Yeah, he has his mistakes, but he was that dedicated and that good at his job that an emperor would literally let him have that kind of power because he wasn't going to take it for himself and it was good for everybody. But shortly after Guang's death, and I know I already miss him, his daughter, though, would prove incapable of producing sons. And on top of that, the rumors of the assassination of the consort at the hands of the whores would begin to circulate. Yeah, it's about to get real messy for the whore clan. But that will be a story for next time. Hopefully next week. I I think I can do it. And again, I apologize. I know I've been told to stop apologizing, but I love this show. I love getting it out. It's just been tough with work. And then, but I really, you know, I'm excited to see where this story goes because we have a lot of history to get to. So, Huo Guang is gone. His daughter is the empress, but his wife's conniving plans are about to get brought up. And with that, Emperor Shren is about to become his own man. Be sure, though, to check out the website and rate the show five stars. Leave a comment, by the way. One of my friends left a very peculiar comment. I wouldn't mind if you guys just flooded the comments so we don't have to see that again. But no, all jokes aside, follow the show, rate it five stars. It may not seem like a lot to you, but it really does mean a lot to me. And of course, as always, thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you all next time on the history of China.